there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are wrapping up our series in 2 Peter with a look at chapter 3, and this episode is entitled Peter and the Return of God. Just a quick recap about what we've discussed the last two weeks on this podcast. 2 Peter was written sometime between 60 to 110 CE. Now, we don't know who it was specifically written to or where Peter wrote the letter from, but we do get the sense that Peter's second epistle is written to people who are struggling with false teachers. So Peter opens his letter with his thesis statement found in chapter 1, verse 4, when he writes, Thus God has given us through these things his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire and may become participants in the divine nature. Peter says you cannot sit back and allow people to spoon feed you what you think is true in Christianity. You have to be a participant and discern what is real and what is valuable from within this religion. After prioritizing participation, Peter gets into specifics about how to discern whether someone is a false teacher or they are a true teacher. He does this in chapter 2, and he begins by saying these words, Even so, many will follow false teachers' licentious ways, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. This is the mark of a false teacher. As we talked about last week, this is how you can tell whether someone is worth listening to or not. How much respect does this teacher have for the way of truth? How much does this person pay attention to the details? How does this person respond when they are presented with information that counteracts or discredits what they have been telling others before? Are they quick to apologize? Are they open to what the way of truth has to teach them? According to Peter, the people who have the greatest respect for the way of truth are the people who are worth listening to. He then goes on to say that we, we Christians, are called to be people of truth. Which brings us to the third chapter of 2 Peter. This is the final chapter of Peter's epistle. And this chapter focuses specifically on what the false teachers are teaching. So let us read chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 and figure out what this false teaching actually is. Peter writes, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. In them, I am trying to arouse your sincere intention by reminding you that you should remember the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken through your apostles. First of all, you must understand this, that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and indulging their own lusts or evil desires and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You may have missed it, but this is the false teaching that is the inspiration behind all of 2 Peter. To talk about what this false teaching is, you have to go back to the year 30. 
Sometime around the year 30 is when Jesus Christ was crucified and, according to Christian tradition, rose from the dead. Now, when someone rises from the dead and people go out into the world saying Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, you can imagine that people said, really, Jesus rose from the dead? Let me see him. And the apostles who had witnessed this resurrection looked at them and said, no, 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 he rose from the dead, but he went back to heaven. But don't worry, everyone, Jesus is coming back. Now, you can't imagine that people who heard this message responded with a bit of skepticism. They asked the question, well, when is Jesus coming back then? To which the disciples, the witnesses to the resurrection said, soon. And the people hearing this testimony said, well, how soon? And the overwhelming response to this question was, he'll be back so soon that Jesus will return before any of us die. That's how soon Jesus is coming back. Now, this claim that Jesus is coming back before anyone in the year 30 dies is a rather big claim. But this claim was not some offshoot, sort of wonky promise from a few stragglers. This claim of Christ's soon return before anyone else died was so prominent that it was central and essential to the early church. To show you how foundational this belief was, we turn to one of the earliest Christian writings. In fact, most scholars argue it is the earliest Christian writing, which is 1 Thessalonians, written by Paul the Apostle. In chapter 4, he writes these words, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means perceive those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. When Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he was convinced that Jesus Christ would return before he died. But this claim does not end with Paul. The matter becomes much more complicated when you read closely the words of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Specifically in Mark 9 verse 1, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and we read these words. Jesus said to the disciples, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, Matthew records Jesus as saying this to his disciples, For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, said Jesus, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Both Matthew and Mark were convinced that Jesus was going to return in their lifetimes. So around the year 30, Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross. He then resurrects, conquers the grave, 
and appears before some disciples and says, I need to leave now. I will return soon. After that, the disciples go out into all the world and tell them the good news of Jesus' resurrection. The world says, where is he? They say, don't worry, he's coming back. The world says, when? The disciples, the apostles say, soon. And the world says, how soon? And the disciples and apostles stand up before people and say, he'll be back before any of us die. And then what happened? Death. Lots of death. And the people in these young churches went to Peter, went to the leaders and said, hey, Peter, you Christians promised us that Jesus would come back before some of us died. Well, some of us are dead now. So we're not really sure that this return of Jesus is actually going to happen. Now, these words are captured in Peter's second epistle in those words we read earlier, verse 4, when the scoffers or the false teachers say these words, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So here you have people out in the world who are upset and frustrated and doubting the whole Jesus resurrection and message because they were promised that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime and their friends and their family were starting to die. Second Peter 3 is extremely valuable because of its uniqueness. N.T. Wright, one of the foremost scholars of the New Testament, writes these words. He says, this passage is the only passage in all of first century Christian literature which addresses directly the question of a delay. So in this delay of Christ's return, these people go around saying, we're not so sure this return of Jesus is actually going to happen. Peter responds by labeling those doubters as false teachers and writing his second epistle, telling people to beware of these false teachers who are doubting the resurrection. Which raises a very important question. Who is actually the false teacher in this story? The people who are doubting the resurrection? Or the people who promised that Jesus Christ would come back in their lifetime, and those people that heard this message ended up dying? Because Paul and Peter and Matthew and Mark were all convinced and adamantly believed that Jesus Christ would come back before they died, and all four of them died. Now, after their death, there was this big question, which was, why hasn't Jesus returned? And there were some Christians who took up the mantle and said, I know it's been a while and it's been a generation, but guess what? Jesus is coming back soon. Not only that, the second generation Christian said, but we are the last generation. We will not taste death because Jesus' return is so close to us. And then wouldn't you know it, those Christians died. Then the next generation of Christians stood up and said, Jesus is coming back soon. We are the last generation. And then that generation died. And then the next generation of Christians stood up and said, Jesus is coming back soon. We are the last generation. And then those Christians died. 
And then the next generation stood up and said the same message. Jesus is coming back soon. We are the last generation. And that generation died as well. This went on and on and on and on for 2,000 years with generations of Christians telling the world, Jesus is coming back soon. You do not have to taste death because Jesus is that close. And all of those Christians died up until 2019. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but it is the year 2019 and Jesus Christ has not come back. And I want you to imagine a timeline in your head from 30 to 2019 with all sorts of Christians saying that Jesus will come back before we die and all of those Christians having a skull and crossbone over their name. And we have this timeline of 2,000 years of death and disappointment. This is essentially a timeline of Christians being wrong for 2,000 years. In fact, I had a theology professor at La Sierra University who said all of Christian theology is written as an excuse for why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Not only that, but I want you to think about if Peter and Paul could somehow look through time and see us worshiping still in 2019 on the other side of the globe in a different language. I don't think they would be elated that we were still spreading the message of Jesus. Instead, I think they'd be quite disappointed and they would scratch their heads and say, wait, 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 Jesus hasn't returned by 2019? And if we take seriously the words of Jesus as recorded in Matthew and Mark's gospel, and Jesus could look through time and space, which many Christians believe can happen, and Jesus sees us worshiping in 2019, it's almost like we can imagine Jesus saying, I haven't returned by 2019? What went wrong because I was sure I was coming back sooner? And when we look at these 2,000 years of Christians proclaiming the soon return of Jesus Christ, I have a message that I would like to share with you right now. We need to learn from Peter's mistake. We need to learn from our history. We need to stop telling people that we are the last generation. And we need to stop telling people that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Because the fact is, my Christian brothers and sisters, we have no idea when Jesus is coming back. Rather than telling the world that Jesus is coming back soon, I think it would be much more helpful and healthy if we told the world Jesus is coming back, but I do not know the hour. This reminds ourselves and the world that we are not privy to information that the world does not already have. We do not know when Jesus is coming back. And when we refuse to learn from our history, we start making promises that we simply cannot cash. We need to learn to say that Jesus is coming back, but I do not know the hour. Because when we tell the world that Jesus is coming back soon, we are promising things that we do not know. 
Now, it may seem to you like I'm making a very big deal out of the word soon, and I want to assure you that I am. And I am making a big deal out of this because I have now spent a decade in ministry. In 2009, I was running a high school ministry called The Fall, and over the past 10 years, I have learned and seen a few things. And what I'm going to tell you on this podcast is something that I have personally witnessed. In over 10 years of ministry, I have seen the message of the second coming of Christ do more harm than good. Yes, you heard me correctly. I have seen the message of the second coming of Christ do more harm than good. And if you do not believe me, then I want to share with you five stories that illustrate how the message of the second coming is harmful. The first is the most obvious and the most apparent. And this is found in the way that Christians treat and care for the earth. Now, one would assume upon reading the Holy Scriptures that because God blesses creation at the beginning of the book, Christians would be the most radical and progressive on taking care of the planet. But what we found in America is that Christians are the most adamantly opposed to taking care of the planet. And when we ask Christians why they don't care for the planet as much as others, Christians will respond with something like this. Taking care of the earth is a waste of time because this planet is not our eternal home. So with the message of the second coming of Christ, Christians view this earth as a temporary space and treat it as such. And Christians in America often oppose the most loudly changes in the way that we live to take care of the planet and instead champion our old traditional ways of destroying the planet that God blesses in Genesis 1. This brings us to the second story, which is about women's ordination. Now, I spent 10 years in the church and I have been stunned at the number of denominations that do not ordain women equal to men. This is rooted in a long conversation about biblical studies, and I will just tell you that I have seen churches spend an extraordinary amount of money trying to decide whether or not women are equal in the eyes of God. So there are all sorts of councils and discussions and meetings and gatherings and conferences where people from all over the globe come together and they vote as to whether or not women should be ordained the same as men. Now, these meetings are rigged from the beginning because it's primarily men voting on this issue. But once these votes go through, and as they so often do, vote to continue to oppress women who choose clergy as their profession, it is shortly after these votes go through that someone stands up and says something along these lines. Finally, we can move on. Because women's ordination is a distraction from our primary work to tell the world of Christ's soon return. And there is this sense that the message of the second coming of Christ is the work and the equality of women is a distraction or a minor footnote. Which brings us to the third story 
about how the message of the second coming of Christ can be harmful. As a pastor, I have been to a number of funerals, and I have seen an expectation that is placed on people who grieve at Christian funerals. At these Christian funerals, there is this strange sense that the less one grieves, the more they have trust in Christ's soon return. So imagine for a moment going to a funeral for a woman and people looking at the husband and knowing that the husband is Christian, they start to whisper to each other saying, did you see how strong he was? He didn't even cry at his wife's funeral because he has so much faith in Christ's return. There is this twisted and frightening and harmful expectation that the message of the second coming of Christ should prohibit you from grieving. And when someone openly grieves or doubts in the midst of a death of a loved one, it is viewed as a betrayal of the faith and a slap in the face of Jesus and the promise of his return. I have seen the message of the second coming of Christ be harmful in the way it prohibits Christians from grieving. Which brings us to the fourth story. Now, I have the sense that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably agree with me when I say that Christians are some of the most judgmental people on the planet, right? I think a lot of that judgment stems from the belief in a last judgment. And there's this real strong sense that God will separate the righteous from the wicked. Now, Christians today have taken it upon themselves for knowing who the righteous and the wicked are now. And so Christians quickly write off large swaths of people because there's this sense that Jesus or God will write them off later at the last judgment. In other words, Christians enable their hatred by saying, if they aren't going to be in heaven later, then I don't have to love them now. And so the message of the second coming of Christ inspires them to hate, to judge, to write off, and to stop forgiving them because they trust that God will not forgive them later. Which brings us to the fifth and final story about how the message of the second coming of Christ can be harmful. Now, this revolves around Jesus Christ returning and raising all of humanity from the dead. This is a rather large claim, isn't it? This is a rather hopeful claim. We have great hope in the resurrection. And if you were to interview Christians across America about what the resurrection is, they would all write eventually the word hope. Which is really funny because when you speak to Christians about what needs to happen between now in 2019 and whenever Jesus Christ comes back, most Christians respond by telling you about how terrible things will be. Christians will say things like, things are going to get much worse before Jesus Christ returns. And so while Christians will say that the message of the second coming of Christ is a message of hope, 
What they are really saying is that it is a message of fear because things are going to get much more frightening. There will be persecutions, there will be death, there will be genocide. It will all happen before we can actually experience something good. So you better get right with God right now. And when we look at these five stories, I think something that we have to do as a Christian community is look at how these stories and how this message can cause harm. We need to acknowledge how the message of the second coming of Christ has caused a great deal of harm to the Christian community and to the people we have told about Christ's return. It's hard for us to go forward to reclaim the message of the second coming of Christ without first acknowledging the pain and the harm we have caused to the earth, to women, to those who are grieving, to people that Christians have judged and written off, and to people that we have scared when we have told them about Jesus' return. We must acknowledge how the message of the second coming of Christ has caused a great deal of harm. Once we can acknowledge that harm, we can begin to reclaim the message of the second coming of Christ. And to discuss how we can reclaim the message of the second coming, I want to share with you five ways that the message of the second coming of Christ can be helpful. Now, to illustrate these five different ways that the message of the second coming can be helpful, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And after each question, I want you to answer that question in your mind or out loud, wherever you are. And after a quick beat, I will then answer that question with what I personally believe. So the first way that this message can be helpful involves the way that we care for the planet. Now, I want you to think about heaven and I want to ask you a question. Will we be dumping enormous amounts of plastic into the oceans of heaven? No. Which raises the question, why are we dumping enormous amounts of plastic into our oceans now? Can you imagine if Christians operated this way in mass in America today? Imagine if Christians were the first ones to start cutting the amount of plastic that we used, and we were the ones who stood up and said, we believe that we will not dump plastic into the oceans of heaven, so we're not going to dump plastic into our oceans now. What if Christians were the ones who led the cleanup of the oceans before everyone else, and they did it with the message of the second coming of Christ in their hand? Which brings us to the second way that this message can be helpful, and it revolves around women's ordination. Now, women's ordination at its core is the ability for women to be equal to men. And when a society or an organization such as a church does not see women as equal to men, then we call that sin sexism, which raises the question, will sexism exist in heaven? No. So why aren't we working to end sexism now? 
When we look at the message of the second coming of Christ this way, all of a sudden sexism and bringing it to an end is the work and not a distraction or a footnote from what we are actually called to be. Now, this may sound radical or revolutionary to you. I will tell you it is not. Because at the core of our faith is the life of Jesus Christ, who Christians profess to be the Son of God. Jesus strongly believed that we could start living an eternal life right here and right now. We do not need to wait for heaven to arrive in order to start living like we are in heaven now. So when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we see sexism happening now and we say that won't exist in heaven. We should bring this to an end now. Which brings us to the third way that the message of the second coming of Christ can be helpful and it revolves around the way that we grieve. Now, the question I want to ask you to consider grieving is this. Is Jesus Christ prominently involved in the second coming of Jesus Christ? <laughs> yes, of course he is. That's why it's called the second coming of Christ. If we take that idea seriously, we look at who Jesus was and who Jesus is as professed through the Gospels. And in John chapter 11, we read about Jesus attending a funeral, and at this funeral, Jesus weeps. Jesus grieves. And the message of the Gospel of John is that God meets us in our brokenness. When we doubt, when we grieve, when we lament against God and say, God, why have you taken him from me? God is found in our tears, which raises the question, why are we discouraging people from grieving in the same way Jesus did? The message of the second coming of Christ should enable and sanctify our ability to grieve. Christian churches should be the first place people turn to when they have a hard time getting over their deceased wife when it's been years since, since she passed away. Christian communities should be places where people are safe to bring their tears, but instead we are the opposite of that. What if we changed the way that we operated on a church level so that we embrace those who are grieving and told people this is the safest place to grieve. The fourth way that the message of the second coming of Christ can be helpful involves the last judgment. Now I want to ask you a series of questions. Is God more forgiving than you? Yes. Is God more merciful than you? Yes. Is God more accepting than you? Yes. Is God going to allow people into heaven that you would not? Yes. So why don't we learn to forgive those people now? And I have to tell you, I, I laugh on the inside when people talk about heaven because a lot of people talk about heaven as a place where we go where we won't have any problems right? 
But what most people don't talk about is how you will be spending an eternity with people who you would not let into heaven. So heaven, by its very nature, requires you to grow in love once you arrive there and all of eternity is spent with you learning how to love more. Now, if this frightens you, I will tell you that you are not alone because I'm not so excited about spending eternity with some people that uh, I wouldn't let into heaven, right? Not only that, but when you look at severe sins of abuse, this doesn't sound like heaven. Instead, it sounds more like hell. Now, one question I did not ask, but is important to ask is this, is God more just than you? Well, I believe the answer is yes. And I believe the question that heaven poses is a question that is worth asking now. How do we balance forgiveness and justice? If that sounds like a difficult question to answer, I will tell you it is. I think it's worth spending a lifetime trying to answer that question. In fact, I would argue it's worth spending eternity trying to answer that question. And the promise of heaven is that we can learn at the feet of Christ as to how we can balance forgiveness and justice. So why wouldn't we start doing that right here and right now? You see, the message of the second coming of Christ challenges us to be both more justice-oriented and forgiveness-seeking. Which brings us to the fifth way that the message of the second coming of Christ can be helpful. Now, this fifth way focuses on the return of Christ and the resurrection of all of humankind at the end of time. Now, a question I want to ask you is this, is the second coming of Christ and resurrection and reunion with our loved ones a message of hope? Yes. So why then aren't we the most hopeful people on the planet? Why aren't we people who are known for our hope? We are known much more for our judgment than for our hope. My advice to you, my brothers and sisters, is that we should replace that judgment with hope. When things look grim and it looks like nothing can be done, Christians should be the one who say, I believe we can change this. We have hope that something can be done right here and right now. And Christians are the ones who lead the world in knowing what it means to hope, not to hope in Christ's return today to fix our problems, but that it is always worthwhile to fix our problems now because we can live like we are living in heaven right here and right now. My brothers and sisters, the message of the second coming of Christ is a message of hope. And if we truly believe it, then we should be a hopeful people. If you are a Christian, do your friends describe you as a person of hope? If not, why not? And what can you do to change that? 
when we look at these five ways that the message of the second coming of Christ can be helpful, from care for the planet, to bringing an end to sexism, to creating places that are safe and encourage one to grieve, to the way that we balance forgiveness and justice, and finally to the way that we hope contagiously. These five ways share something in common. All of these ways ask a question. How does the message of the second coming of Christ inspire me to change my behavior today? Now, for too long, the church has answered this question for people. The church has told people, you can be inspired by the message of the second coming of Christ to become more religious now. Ah, uh, give me a break. Whenever someone tells you that Jesus is coming back, so you need to be more religious, you will find that that message will lead to a great deal of harm. But the message of the second coming of Christ can be very helpful. And the difference between harmful and helpful is simply entrusting that you can see how heaven can exist on this earth now. How you can change your behavior in an effort to live more like you are living in eternity in this temporary and finite existence on this planet. My brothers and sisters, may we have the courage and the faithfulness to live as though we are living in heaven now. May we be people of hope, people who balance justice and forgiveness, people who welcome and embrace those who are grieving and grieve ourselves. May we be a people who bring an end to sexism, homophobia, and racism. And may we be people who stop dumping plastic into our oceans. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.